let's go. Acts chapter 2. So, before, I, before we read it, and we've, we've dealt with the, 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 the Holy Spirit being poured out in the first part of the chapter, which is usually significant for the empowering of mission. And we spoke about that last week a little bit. If you want to, you can listen to it online. It's kind of very embarrassing, but you can listen to it online. Uh, but uh, basically, the premise of last week for me, and what I try to communicate, is that we have, we have been through so many dispensations and kind of moves of the Spirit and emphases on, on various aspects of the kingdom. Um, and and I'm not, I don't want to waste my time going into that. But the, the, encounter, the encountering or the experiencing of the Holy Spirit is a big deal without a shadow of a doubt. Without a doubt. Uh, and we want to gear, and we've always said this from day one with Red Hill, we want to gear and build and expect the harvest to come in and, and, and the identity of the church culture to be around the presence of God. So like Moses said, I'm not going to go unless your presence goes with us or ahead of us. We don't want to go unless the presence goes ahead of it. And, and, and generally in a North American world or culture um, of secularism, that way or that mentality or that stance that we take that we're not going to go faster than the presence of God is a slow-growing reality. But I have to believe that it's something that goes deeper, and so it has a generational impact that's exponential. Does that make sense? It's like, those, uh, it's like when those superheroes come to earth and you, and you see those, those waves, like, perking up there. But I had to throw that in to wake Craig up. So, so, yeah, so, so that's what we, so the presence, so the presence is, is key. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and, and, this, and, and I can't, can't re-preach that sermon, was basically to empower, please say empower, <laughs> to empower the disciples of Jesus Christ, or those, or those who, who have betrayed him, turned their backs on him, denied him, ran, and then he gathered them all back together with many signs and wonders. For several days, he showed that he has risen from the dead, and he said, don't go anywhere, wait in Jerusalem. Wait for what? Wait, wait for the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will become my witnesses. And so this is the key thing that I want to go into the next part of Acts 2 with. They will, they will not become his witnesses when they go out to witness. It's, 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 it's the reality of the Holy Spirit having come upon them. The, 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 the naturally supernatural part of that reality is that they are now witnesses, which, which means that they, they move in a supernatural power naturally in the life, in the world, every day where they go to Starbucks, wherever they go, where they work. Does that make sense? And so I want to, to launch into this incredible sermon that Peter preached Peter preached uh, to, 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 uh, to this crowd that stood around him, predominantly Jews, but there were Gentiles involved as well. And, uh, and, and Peter stood up and preached this, 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 this word to, to the crowd. So what I will do is I will read it. Before I read it, I want to say one more thing. There was a guy called Leslie Newbegin. Has anybody ever read any of Leslie Newbegin stuff? Anyway, he was a missionary. He's an Englishman, high Englishman, left in the 30s to India and made one convert in his lifetime, returned to England in 1970-ish, after the wars, and found that doing church in England was exactly the same as when he left in the 30s for India. But the mindset, the world had completely changed, and Alan Hirsch speaks a bit about this in his books, Forgotten Ways, the world had completely changed. England had now become completely secular. There was no context for the gospel anymore in normal, everyday society in England. But Newbegin noted this in his book, that the church had not changed in any way the way they were doing church. They were doing church exactly the same way. But instead of having a big pie 
of reaching 90% of the community per se, let's just make this up, who, because there was a reference, there was a social reference of, there was a God awareness, there was an awareness of the church's presence in society through social work and, and just the presence of God had now shrunk from 90 to maybe 10%. But the church was still doing the exact same thing, although the, the statistics had completely changed and now the 90% was absolutely irrelevant and therefore the church was just managing a steady decline. Is that about right, Mary? Yeah, they still are, yeah. Now, there's authority if you want to, want to hear that. I mean, she grew up in that time, and she's, she's like just over 55, so she, you've had experience in that, in that era. And the point, the point that I'm trying to make here is that Peter standing up here on this day, after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and he, and he quotes the prophet Joel, and we're going to read that, and he's basically saying, guys, you killed the Son of God. It was you. It was no seeker-sensitive reality in this preach at all. But he, but he phrases it to get the attention. Like many psychologists will tell you, only when you're at the rock bottom sometimes do you pay attention to your psyche for transformation to even become a possibility. They're standing on the cusp. That particular historical moment was the end of the old and the beginning of the new. Although there were transient realities in, in both of those worlds, generationally, Paul, Peter stood up and said, guys, you must think differently. There's no more time to waste to think in the old. You killed him. Now it's done. And he's alive. So now is the time for you to think differently. And I feel that God is saying this to us. I really do. I mean, it's a long shot, but I really do. I feel God is constantly saying to us. If you've been in the church for more than 10 years, you have idiosyncratic is that even the thing? Patterns and ways of thinking and therefore ways of expecting God to move and therefore ways that you think the lost will be saved and therefore your view of renewal and revival is based on what you've experienced in the past. But Peter says here, guys, he's dead. He's alive. You've done what you had to do. Nothing's, now everything in your thinking has to change. Your paradigm has to be smashed. It has to be broken. And I feel that we stand like... I hate to be so emphatic about stuff, but I feel we're standing in a place in history as a church where we must hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about sanctification or holiness or the, the working of the Spirit of God in your life. Those things are amazing, and they will always continue, and we will grow to the extent that we respond to God's. But I'm talking about reaching the world, reaching Milton, Oakville, Mississauga, and Georgetown. That little place there. Jokes. So let's read it. Verse 14. So Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem. Sorry, I made a mistake last week. It wasn't the Feast of Passover. Pentecost means 50 days. So Pentecost happened 50 days after the Feast of Passover. It was the Feast of Harvest and Barley they were actually in the middle of those two feasts. That was the time. That's why everybody was in Jerusalem at that time. Anyway, so, um, where am I? Uh, yeah. Fellow, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I'm saying. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And everybody knew Joel, because they were Jews. Well, most of the people. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. 
This is significant because Israel thought it was all about Israel. Just like the church thinks it's all about the church. When most of the miraculous wonders and powers that are repeatedly spoken about in Acts 1, 2, 3, and all the way down to Acts 28 is out in the world. So the empowering presence is for us not to become cooler, smoother, uh, slicker here, but to become more powerful, naturally supernatural out there. So on all people, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. And I love that it's happening in our community so much, guys. I'm telling you, I'm so happy about that. It's amazing. Because our young women definitely prophesy, and our young men are seeing visions. Your old men will dream dreams. John tells me often about the dreams he's having. Jokes. John, did I just say that? I've got to fall down. Jeez. <laughs> I love you. I love you, Buti. Sorry, man. <clears throat> Even on my servants, servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Now, for us who have read this so many times, this is a great scripture. It's amazing. It, it encourages us. But for there... At that moment, it was addressing political reality, cultural reality, uh, discrimination and wars that were between male, female, Jew, Gentile, and all those realities. And he was literally hitting with every word, smashing straight onto a worldview that had to come down for the outbursting of the power of the Holy Spirit. And friends, we're in the same place. Even in our Christendom, even in what we think it should look like. We're in the same place. I will pour out my spirit in those days on, and, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a beautiful promise. Absolutely amazing. That's Joel chapter 2 that he's literally quoting there. Men of Israel, listen to this. And he says this a bunch of times in this chapter to just to draw people's attention because these words are literally so weighty that they're changing the history of, of, of man. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourself know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and the foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we all, witnesses of the fact, exalted to the right hand of God, He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David didn't ascend to heaven, 
And yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accept this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. With many other words, he pleaded with them. He warned them to save themselves from that generation. That generation speaks of a worldview at that particular moment. And he was ushering in this reality of the risen Savior. The risen Savior. Israel thought it was about Israel. The church thought it was about the church. But, but neither are correct. Neither are correct. It is about Jesus as the, tongue, the pillar of fire in the temple was there. The pillar of fire was there when God gave the law to Moses. The pillar of fire was there in the upper room on that day. It split, broke, and came to rest on everyone. And so the church becomes this reality. The church has to live by a different mandate, different mentality. Somebody say yes, true, or something. Okay. Talk amongst yourselves. Have a word. All right. And so, so I'm going to take this passage now and I'm going to tell you what I feel the Lord is saying to us as a church. <laughs> okay. And some of it is a bit removed, but you'll get, the, you'll, get, you'll get what I'm wanting to say here. We love to go on missions in our community. We do it. We go on, on, on to other nations, Mexico, and we want to go to Romania. Uh, we want to go to the BVI more. And wherever God opens the doors for us. It's not just a shotgun thing, but it's a, it's a specific thing. But we don't go on mission because it's one of the requirements of a Christian or a follower of Jesus or a disciple. We go on mission because fundamentally it is who God is. God gave His Son. He sent Him and He came. And He's incarnate. And He became like you and I to identify with us. So in the very essence, the things that we do as followers of Jesus, we do because it is who God is. Does that make sense to you? And that is such a huge reality because it, it breaks down the divide that we've created between the secular and the sacred. Between the world, as you call it, and the church. There should never be such a thing. Brothers, this should not be. We should be who we are here and we should be exactly who we are here out there in the world with a similar expectation for the power of God to move through us. True? Because of one reason. Not because we are pleasing God or doing works unto salvation to earn our salvation. It's the wrong platform completely. Like Tom keeps saying, over and over and over, and he can never say it enough. We already live from a platform of perfection before God. And the problem is not really to get the, to get the world saved. The problem is to get believers to believe who they really are in Christ. And therefore, like King Harry, or what is he? Harry and William, like I told you this so many times, like they were taught how to sneeze, taught how to walk. They can't sit there. They can't drink a beer on a patio. They can't do this. Why, Why not? They work, they, they, because they are kingly. 
We can drink beers on patios, I'm just saying, as Christians. But, but, but we behave in a certain manner because we fundamentally know who we are in Christ. Therefore, we don't have to stand for certain things. And mindsets is definitely a, a, definitely a reality. And I don't even want to start with the statistics of our, of our society. Depression is at an all-time high. Suicide at an all-time high. Sex, sexual gender identity at an all-time confused level. And I want to boil it down in the sense of reading Peter's charge to the believers to take responsibility. That's what I want. I don't think I can, unless God's Holy Spirit enables me. But to take responsibility for a culture that is breaking into a lost world where light is piercing the darkness. And darkness cannot overcome the light. So that when we're in the world, we're not of the world, and we live differently in this radical love of God. And we believe that we have all power, all authority, that we can heal the sick, we can raise the dead, and we can do everything that God is. The premise of this book is that Luke wrote to Theophilus the account of everything that Jesus said and did. And we live our lives based on the fact that God is a missionary. And God is on mission. And he will always be on mission. And... and, uh, I wrote this quote down. This guy called Chris White, he said, mission is basically the participation in what God is like. It's so cool. We participate in what God is like. So we never arrive in another country, in another town, in another office, in another job environment, thinking, (laughs) you guys are so lucky that I'm here. No. We say, Lord, what are you already busy with here? And how can I participate with that? So that's fundamentally why we do this, because God is this. And therefore, we don't go on a mission or do missions. Mission doesn't start as a command. It starts with who God is. I love that. And this is Peter's cry for me. It's fun, it is fundamentally who God is. And therefore, as disciples, it is who we are. And so when we, when we move around our towns, our lives, do our lives, we are aware We have to be aware of what we carry on us, that we carry that thing on us. I'm telling you, it is super refreshing to see people that are aware of that. It's amazing. Because, thank God, they're not weirdos. They're not flaky. They don't beat people up with the scripture. They most often know who they are by coming below. And I don't know how else to say this, but even coming below culture. Not submitting to it, but coming below it. Please, I need the Holy Spirit. We all do. So, um, God, God is always on mission. And I've got so many scriptures. Genesis 1, he goes after Adam and Eve. And then the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, he goes after, he goes after Abraham. And then Jesus, he sends Jesus. The Father sends his Son. The Son sends the Spirit. The Spirit sends the church. You and I are the church because of who he is. And, um, and I know it's something that I've just communicated quickly like that. But if you meditate on that, like every day, like I am doing this because this is who God is, it changes your perspective from a a works mentality to a delight and also a super dependence dependence on on the presence. Okay. So the question isn't how do we get people saved? The question is who is God? (laughs) And and how can I be like him? Um, And um, yeah, I want to at some point create a space, not today, but where we can just 
tell stories. I've become so aware in the last two weeks of just people telling random stories of how they've interacted with people who do not know Jesus at all. And like in the last three months, I've met a guy um, who's never heard about Jesus in his life. How many of you have met anyone like that? Wow, it's like four or five people. Never heard about Jesus. I was so shocked, and the guy was shocked because of how shocked I was. He was like, have I said anything wrong? What what is happening? He's so shocked. And so just the awareness of the mandate on our lives to love people and and to be like God. And this is what I want to say. If we are like God in our lives and we believe and we believe uh, who God says that we are, our behavior will change. If we try to change our behavior to be like God, we're still missing the point. It's that works thing that so subtly creeps in and uh, we, think, we think we're free, but we're not really. And so, Actually, I have three points. That was point one, for those of you who are taking notes, okay? <laughs> point number two. Okay, so... Point number one is God is on mission, and so that's why we are on mission. That's who God is. Point number two is God is on mission to restore all of creation. Now, I love that you guys love Linda's announcement about the coffee shop and the cups. It's a big deal. Okay, I watched a show, and I follow this guy on Instagram who saves uh, seals and cuts the straws off them and turtles with the six-pack, you know, the six-pack that you, you know, the, the plastic thing holds them together. They end up... You know that there are, Eric was telling me that there are islands of trash floating in the oceans. And, and, um, and um, you can watch documentaries on Netflix, fork, spoons over forks and cow stuff. And there's all kinds of stuff like that, okay? And there's all kinds of stuff. But, but listening to guys like uh, John Marcoma and uh, Greg Boyd and guys that are just thinking progressively about the church, believing that heaven is coming here, we're not, going, we're not ducking and diving and being ready to go there, there's some euphoria that is like pie in the sky stuff, but heaven is coming here, it places, it shifts mission. Shifts mission. That mission is not really only the salvation of mankind. It is that primarily, I would say. I would say primarily. But it is the redemption of all of culture, all of, of, of nature. Okay? When I say this and I sound very passionate, I'm simultaneously equally hypocritical because I, 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 I want to do more for the environment and I want to save the animals more. And that's why this is the last time I'm going to use this plastic cup, right? But, but my point is here, God is on mission to restore all of creation. And that was his charge to Adam. All of creation needs to be restored back. And Sean's like, yay, finally someone's waking up. Yeah. And this is not a trendy, cool thing that we're all going to go and buy Teslas and Subarus and uh, you know, have stickers, save the forest, and those kind of things on, the, on, the, on, on our thing. It's not, a, it's not a yuppie, trendy, hipster thing that we're doing now. It is a part of the redemptive mission of God on this thing. Go and read the sermon of Peter again, and you'll see it. And so the Bible is one big story of one God who's on mission. And we, if we believe who He says we are in Him, become one with Him, and therefore, therefore by default, one with the mission that He's on. We don't go on mission and now we are missionaries. No. We know God. We don't save people because we say to them, if you die tonight, you're going to heaven or hell. No. We draw near to God. The fragrance of God is something that comes upon you. And that's why <coughs> the stories that I've heard lately were stories of people connecting randomly with people in waiting rooms at the hospital, in the gym, okay, behind their desk at work, 
That's a common place where people connect with people. And, and just generally connecting with people because we, we are aware of God. The fragrance of God is upon our lives. But we cannot simultaneously live in the two cultures like Peter makes very clear. We have to change. And Jesus said it very clearly. Unless you change and become like a child. It doesn't say unless you become like a child. It says unless you change, become like a child. You cannot see the kingdom. And it's like trying to explain something to someone. This week, Levi and I were chatting. There's a condition um, that he mentioned the name of. Do you remember the name or no? When people do not have the ability in their brain to picture something. I know Eros has that. I say to Eros, Eros, think of a blue polar bear. And he's like, and I'm like, can you see it? He's like, no. I'm like, you're lying. Of course you can see it. Or I say, okay, don't think about a luminous yellow shark. Don't, don't think about it, guys. Don't think about it. Okay, how many of you are seeing the luminous yellow shark? Okay, statistically 98% of human beings, but there's 2% of the world that cannot see that. Those guys are usually very cerebral intellectuals. Is he like that? Is he like intellectual? Yeah, I think, he, I think so too. So that's why Eros loves the scripture more than most people I know. He loves, he's line on line on line on line. And when he reads the scripture, you can see he's not just reading the words, he's reading it. He's reading it. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I, sorry, I can't remember why I told this story. So, this is the, what? Levi. Yeah. The condition, yeah, the condition in the mind where some people can't, uh, can't picture it. Um, hmm? The what? Oh, yes. Yes, thank you. So, it's like t- t- trying, to, trying to paint a picture of the kingdom for someone, and they, ca- they literally they, they, they cannot see it. It's a cognitive dissonance. They, you t- talk about something that's real, it's there, but they just don't have it. It's like sending them out to hang the washing. They take the washing, they want to do it, they get outside, they've got the washing, there's no washing line. But there is a washing line, but they can't see the washing line. It's called the cognitive dissonance. Yes. And so, in the kingdom, when we draw close to God, it's not required. The imagination world is key. In, in prayer, it's, it's, particularly, it's particularly vital that I imagine. That's why we call the things that are not as though they were because we see the things that are not. But they're not yet. But we see them. We see them by faith. And so the promises of God is not that we're going to become cooler, more beautiful. And most of you are very beautiful or have awesome millions of followers of Instagram or anything like that. No. But we're going to grow from faith to faith. Glory to glory. Greater perspective of the kingdom to a greater perspective of the kingdom. But you cannot mix the two. Literally impossible. Unless we change, become like a child, we cannot see the kingdom. No matter how determined we are, no matter how much we want, we cannot see it. And I hope this is not too abstract for you. It changes everything from why we do it, like let's do this because this is the Christian thing to do, to let me draw near to God because this is what God's like and therefore I become naturally supernatural. Okay, so it's one. So end of the story, it all, it all ends on, in a city. And the city, that, and the commission, the Abrahamic covenant that was given to him is to go, multiply, create culture, make food, um, art, architecture. That's why, who saw a city, the builder and architecture's God? Who saw that? John. Guys, come on. Anybody? Gary, who saw that? John. It was John. So a builder whose architect was God. So it's, it's, it's the creation of culture, the redemption of culture. I believe it. I love that Phil says he believes in geographical places where the presence of God is. I believe in that too. I love it. 
Because when I drive from one state sometimes into another state or country, country, I instantly feel there's a change, there's a shift in the spiritual atmosphere. Sometimes it just feels so free, but there's chaos on the ground. But something is different. It's free, it's open. It's, that, it's just that awareness. I need to slow down, okay? So it all ends in this, in this glorious city. And therefore, everything, all sorts of redemptive things are included in that culture. Do you guys remember years ago when we met one day in the nightclub on Highway 5? Do you guys remember that? That day was so amazing to me because we thought we were going to get that club, that nightclub. But what I think what happened is that God wanted us to redeem that space. If that sounds flaky to you, I'm sorry about that. It's just what I'm thinking. When we were worshiping in that place, it was probably, I don't know, one of the highlights of the eight years that we've been in Canada for me, just that morning. The worship was so easy. The only way I can explain it to you was synthetic oil. Just like flows. It was just like easy. We did nothing. We touched the guitar. The presence of God filled the place. And it was just amazing to watch the church rise up and worship God and redeem the space and the spiritual atmosphere. Do you think we can do that with nature? Yes. Do you think we can do it with cultural paradigms? Yes. There's all kinds of utter depravity going on in cultural paradigms around the world. We can enter those places, like Tim Keller says, and if it's tough, stay as long as you can. That's mission. It's not always a three-point plan. It's what did God say, based on who he is. And on that, I will go. And thirdly, the way God wants to do this, it's through a people willing to go. The point of Israel... They were, the, they were the end to a means. They, 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 and that's why these, if you study a little bit deeper, the, end, the Gospels and the Book of Acts, the Jews were so upset about this because they believed it was all about them from the beginning. But it was never about them. It was, they were always the means to the end. That's why it's every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and that's why we're here. And there are no Jews here. We are here because of this that God saw in the beginning. That every one of us on mission. And we cannot think that it's all about us. We cannot think the church is about church. We cannot think it's all about church. And I want to get to the point that I really want to make and I'm done. We are also a means to an end. The day that we think that we are here to be here from Sunday to Sunday, to connect with each other here, is the day like Leslie Newbegin where we are starting to manage the climb. And at large, the North American church is in that place. But because we have the resources opposite to the other parts of the world, which is much bigger than us, we can buy brighter lights and hire cool musicians. That's why we have John under contract for so long. Sorry, John. That's the last time I'll ever make it. We can try harder. We can do better. We can have great flowers. We can create media platforms. We can be cooler and cooler and cooler. But ultimately, we can even have more and more and more people. But ultimately, we're managing the climb. Why? Because we think it's about us. The reason we exist is for those guys that are not sitting next to you. The reason why we are in the city is to impact, to affect our city. It's never going to happen through the pros. I am pathetic professionally. So please don't rely on me. Don't put your chips in any way on me. It's us as we go with intention. Unless we change, become like a child, we cannot see the kingdom. 
So we can't live in a dualistic world where I want my own way, I want my own flesh, I desire the things that I want and that's that. Because desire is only altered and changed in the place of intimacy. I'm not willing to slow down and get close to the, God, to, to the Lord like the breath we spoke about last week so he can breathe his breath into my actual lungs like he did with Adam and like he did with the disciples at the end of the gospel. Receive the Holy Spirit. No, I don't want, don't want intimacy. I want form. I want three points and I'm cool. So Peter calls the church to join God's mission on earth. And there are three things. Make disciples, work. <laughs> work is a big deal. If you think that the kingdom is no work, you're wrong. Create, redeem, be, a, be super, super, what's the word? Creative, creative. Um, and so that's why we need great accountants like Linda. We need great carpenters like Warwick. We, <laughs> we, need, uh, we need great doctors like, like Kev. We need great bakers like Cole. Yeah, absolutely. We need great soccer coaches like Eros and amazing writers like Chili. We need, we need great gardeners like Grandma Mary. We need great garage all day. Okay, Ray, you do much more than sell garage doors, but great business people. <laughs> we need, <laughs> I'm not kidding you. This is the gospel. We need great chicken farmers. We need great lawn mowers. We need great guys who, who spray the, 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 the weeds on our lawns. We need great students at school. We need great people in business. Because it's one of our ways and mandates to create the reality behind the mission we profess. And then thirdly, justice. If we ignore the poor, we're dead. Where the poor is, there you'll find God. That's it. No shadow of a doubt about it. So we cannot do that. So these are the, like three major expressions of mission for me today in the world. As we become like God and we become aware of these things around us, then these are ways that we can do it. We make disciples. Remember? You can't make a disciple unless you are one. Number two, work. Find a job. Please don't ever aspire to be a full-time pastor. Wow, no. Please be a full-time whatever God's called you to be. It's so cool and liberating. It's amazing. And then, um, and then, and then, um, and what we don't want, and I'm done, guys. There's only 20 minutes. Come on. Julia, how long have I been? That's mean, that means it's good. Levi, must I close up? Okay. Levi said three minutes I have. <laughs> okay. So this, these, are th- these are three things that I, I got from, from John Marcoma in one of his books. <laughs> Shut up, Wood. Don't do that. Okay, I've got to focus because this is important. Okay. What we don't want and how this will not happen is if we make it Sunday-centric. Even if we have awesome Valiant's going to open any minute now. My thing about Valiant is not here in the mornings and, and, you know, and on Sundays. This is such a cool environment for us to have cappuccinos. It's absolutely wonderful. But watch what's going to happen to the space when those who do not know Jesus are intrigued as they walk into a coffee shop that has the best coffee in Milton, hands down. I'm not kidding you. I know. I know because I know. Coffee. Cool baristas, cool creative music. And as we grow into an art gallery, cool art because of the unsaved. That coffee shop does not exist for Red Hill, guys. It exists as that expression of why we are here. The church does not exist for the church. So we cannot be Sunday-centric. We cannot get better and better at Sunday and never see you until next Sunday. We have all kinds of connection groups and communities that are going on. 
Some are missional communities because people just get around because they like to eat, and so they cook together, whatever the case is. And there's other groups that study the Bible. There's gospel and life going on. There's this sweet marriage cause going on where Catherine and I have whisper arguments. <laughs> like the other guys in the movie. And so on and so on. There's so much going on. Just find, ask anyone. Ask anyone. Number two, it cannot become personality-driven. It cannot. Personality-driven is a super dangerous thing because the gifts are, the Bible says, without repentance, which means God gives us gifts and you don't have to think differently. So don't make it about a personality-driven thing. There's only one personality, really, which is the reality. It's our beautiful Savior. And thirdly, we cannot have consumer-orientated programs. Consumer-orientated programs. It's all about me, 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 me. Make me fatter, make me fatter. I want to know again how much Jesus... Just tell me one more time. That's why I don't say, Oh, Lord, fall on us just one more time. No, what? No! Go! And make disciples. Like Floyd McClung says, If you're sick, just go. God will heal you on the way. It's so anti-consumer. Consumer. And you know why that's such a big deal? It's not so much because I see it here at Red Hill. Maybe a little bit in my life. Not you. You guys are awesome. But it's because it is a massive idol in North America. The church exists for me, to meet my needs. So if you don't have a wicked children's program, hasta la vista, baby. Not, wow, we are here for those who aren't here. And how can we make this better so that those who come in here can be drawn into the the character of this awesome Savior and then, (laughs) before they know it, launched on mission again. Anyway, done. So, yeah, so those are the three things we don't want. Sunday-centric, we don't want it. And if we are that right now, friends, please help us change it. Please help us change it. Eat together as often as you can, because Jesus never ate alone. And do that. And then, uh, lastly, uh, uh, lastly, okay. Uh, The church is back in your hands as people. There's no professionals. There's a, there's a slogan that Home Depot has. It's actually, it's actually amazing. It, they don't live up to the slogan at all, by the way. Sorry, Home Depot. The slogan is, you can do it, we can help. Okay? You go there for help. You walk around for two hours. You find some dude who's in grade nine. <laughs> he's like, I don't know, man. His boots are size 13 when he's actually wearing a size 8. He's like, I don't know, man. Hey, dude. What screw do I need for that? I don't know, man. Let me call someone. No, don't call someone. You can do it. We can help. That's a great slogan if they only live up to it, you know. And so, you can do it. You can do it. And we can help. You can live for Jesus and we can help. If you're out in the, if you're out in the shadows, you're not, you're not wanting to live for Jesus. You want a consumer-driven program so you could. The church is not about the church. It cannot be Sunday-centric. It cannot be personality-driven. You are the church. <sighs> Amen. Before I pray, I just want to tell you a story of a house. We just built a house with a friend. Can I say who it is? Never mind. It was a complete gut. Okay? <laughs> there are two kinds of house building renovations, basically. One is you buy the paint, you buy the tiles, you just tile the floor, you paint the walls. It's the cosmetic, and it looks dramatically different. There's another one where you tear the whole place down, right? And you start from the bottom and you build it up, okay? I, I believe that if we slap paint on the walls of the church culture in North America, 
and tile a couple of cracked foundations, we will literally kill our children. We will destroy the next generation. When God commissioned Jeremiah, he says there will be times where you will tear down, overthrow, before you can build and plant. And we cannot jump the gun by thinking we're planting and building before we face the reality of the culture we lived in and say, God, this thing has, the Christendom as we know it, has to come completely down. And we're all in it together. Literally, we're all in it together. There's no perfection. We're all in it together. And we're doing it together as we follow Jesus. Amen? Let's stand together.